You are listening to the Labour Talk podcast, produced by John Beattie. Subscribe on iTunes or listen at soundcloud.com. Welcome to another Labour Talk podcast. And this podcast is going to feature the speech by Labour's Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell at the Morning Star Scotland conference. The conference title was Big Capital, Small Nations, Neoliberal Politics, Corporate Power and the EU. I've recorded John McDonnell's speech, so that will be the content of this podcast. So enjoy. I'm ready to go back to I don't want anyone passing up a P45 or the backdrop. I can't be cheer for the uh, usually cheer for, for this um, conference. It gives me the opportunity to do two things. One is really to <coughs> back on progress. And then secondly, usually to get a, a piece in the Daily Mail the following day accusing me of being a Marxist, Communist, Stalinist, Trotskyist. <laughs> the last week of his uh, association with Kim Il-sung, I thought that was really <laughs> interesting. Okay. I, do, I, want to, I want to just go through um, where we're at at the moment. Um, in terms of just uh, the title of the conference today about neoliberal politics, corporate power media, let's just deal with that really quickly. In terms of neoliberal politics. But we've argued for a long period of time um, that people need to understand what neoliberal politics is all about. It's about uh, a, a government and uh, politicians adopting the view that in trickle-down economics, if you cut the, the taxes to the rich and the corporations, somehow that money will trickle down and it will raise the overall level of um, prosperity within society itself. It, it, Neoliberal politics now, after a 40-year dominance, has now come to an end, effectively. It's in crisis, and it's in crisis because the real world is intruding. And it's especially intruding in this, in this um, country, across, the, across Great Britain. Neoliberal politics is cha- being challenged by people's real world experiences, basically. We, what has it delivered? Well, a government, basically, that can't house its population. We've got the biggest housing crisis since the Second World War. It isn't just enough homelessness doubling in the last few years, but also overcrowding, the waitingness that go on. We're building less homes now than we're in the 1920s. Secondly, it says a, a, a government that can't feed its population, a million and a quarter of food parcels handed out last year. You know, nurses, nurses and other professionals having to rely on food banks because of low wages. So government that can't house its population, can't feed its population. In terms of the caring of the sick, we now know waiting lists are going up. In fact, some areas now, in the, I don't know, you saw the story about six weeks ago, in some areas, the, the rationing of operations now has got to the point of even rationing the insertion of stents into heart patients, etc. I'm glad it hasn't started. I had a stent three years ago. I'm glad I haven't started. Now I'm going anywhere. But that's what's happening in some parts of this country. Which is so, so in other words, life-threatening conditions now are not even being treated. And then when it comes down to education, well, you ask every, every teacher what they think. Rising class sizes, and then when kids leave school, they go to university in England, etc., £57,000 worth of tuition fees, etc., and then cutbacks on apprenticeships and FE training right away across the country. So again, a government can't house its population, feed its population, educate or treat the sick. That's the crisis of neoliberalism. Well, actually, the biggest crisis, I think, is the one that most people feel, and it's... It's horrendous since the crisis of poverty and inequality. We have now 
four million children living in poverty. And this argument about if you go to work, work is the best way of lifting out in poverty, not anymore. Because two thirds of those kids are living in families where there's someone at work. And that's why has that been brought about? That's become, been brought about by low wages, why has low wages been brought about? Largely through exploitation, but as a result of the undermining of trade union rights. So that's the effect of neoliberal economics and neoliberal politics. It's in crisis now, challenged across the piece by ordinary working people because we experience no working lives. And it's now, I find it bizarre. There's no surprise that at the Tory party conference, their biggest debates around building council houses, tackling, <laughs> lifting the pay cap, and sorting out education, health, etc. Not that they're going to do anything meaningful about that, but it means they're forced into that agenda because of the crisis of their own politics, which is neoliberal economic policy that they've pursued for the last seven years, but is dominated, hegemonising the old Gramsci concept, the whole of, of common sense thinking as they see it within the Tory party, but then also invaded itself into other political parties as well, not least Labour for a period of time as well. And in terms of corporate power, the other element in, in the title, we know that we talk about corporate capture. This government was never captured by the corporations. It was part of them. It was their executive voice in government and has been so all the way through the last seven years. So if you look at the development of its taxation policy, you look at its supposed investment plans, and you look at its implementation of privatisation on a mass scale, all as a result of corporations dictating government policy. In terms of the EU, the position that we're at the moment, as you know, is we respect the, the decision to withdraw, and now we're trying to negotiate the best collaborative and cooperative relationship we possibly can. But I have to say that the, use of the EU has been used in the past to prevent interventions by the state, and in many instances, I think, used as an excuse to prevent interventions by the state. But whatever relationship we now develop with the EU has to be on the basis of setting out our manifesto and how we implement it. The issue for me about the relationship we now construct has got to be on the basis of a checklist of what will best enable us to implement our manifesto that we want to do. We've just put to the electorate, and when the next election comes, we'll have a radicalised and updated manifesto. That's where we're at on, on those issues. But let me just tell you where we need to go from here and the work that, that we're doing. So take this as the sort of annual report back, if you like. Um, there isn't a day I don't wake up um, recognising the seriousness of the task that we've got. Because uh, this is the biggest opportunity we've had, isn't it? In maybe two generations at least. This is the this is the opportunity now to go into government with a ra radical manifesto with a Labour leadership, a Labour leadership committed to that manifesto. And at the same time, a Labour membership, nearly 600,000 members, which are our greatest electoral asset that we've got. So this is the potential that we have of having a socialist <coughs> government. Now, most of us, when I've been up here for Morning Star conferences, we're planning for that maybe 20 or 30 years hence for the next generation. Now it's come, so we've got a serious task in hand. And the, the two elements that we're, we're working on at the moment that we need to think hard about. One is the electoral task that we've got. Now, we've just gone through the analysis of the, um, the British election survey, which is the biggest um, detailed uh, um, survey of what happened in the last election itself. And it's interesting what happened. Um, and I don't think this was about retail politics, by the way. I don't think this was about, we'll give you this if you vote for us. I think it was much more than that. 
I think this is more about the way in which we approach people to give them hope and actually the transformative agenda that we put forward. Um, so if you look at what happened across, the G across Great Britain, uh, in terms of the, the analysis of the vote from 2015 to 2017, we held on to about 80% of our vote. The Tories held on to 83% of theirs. Labour took Green votes and Liberal votes right the way across. In fact, wiped them out virtually. But when it came to the UKIP votes, and in particular, we took 20% of those votes roughly, and about 50% of them went, went to the Tories. Interestingly enough, in, in Scotland, I'll show the figures are extraordinary. Because it's a three-party system, the system it's quite different because in what was held on to in terms of votes in Scotland, <coughs> Labour held on to um, hang on, where is it? Labour held on to I'll get there in a minute. Labour held on to 62% of its vote in 2015, but we lost 25% of the vote to the Tories. Now that must have been a unionist vote of some sort that went, some, that went, went there. Interestingly enough, SNP held on to 62% of the vote. 16% of the SNP vote came to Labour. 8% of the SNP went, went to the Tories. And it's interesting that the pattern was similar to, similar to the, um, what happened in England, was that Labour picked up a significant element of the young person's vote, so under 25s. In the rest of the country, in, in England in particular, we picked up, we had large majorities, right the way up to 45, 50, something like that. The SNP actually picked up a majority between 25 and well, 35, 45. So it was more mixed in Scotland, but there was a general trend of young people coming towards us, the next generation coming through. The choice had massive leads amongst older people. So the serious work that we're, the serious work that we're now doing, and we all need to do now, is just look at where those votes will come from in the next election. And it, I think we need a much wider debate than just the sterile statistics. But in terms of the youth vote, I think that wasn't just about tuition fees in England. I do think it was about giving people hope, looking to a new society, etc. And because it was such an enthusiastic vote. We were told all through the election campaign by the election analysts in the Labour Party HQ, you know, these people are called non-voters because they don't vote. Well, we said they will this time. And they did. They poured out into their hundreds of thousands and voted for us. The next generation, though, the 14 to 18-year-olds, though, are absolutely critical for us now, because they'll be voting in the next election. And actually, it's interesting, we've had quite a surge of support for people joining the Labour Party amongst that 15 or 16-year-old group. And again, it's an area of work that we need to take seriously. And that is about talking about what is it like for their lives in schools and colleges at work at the moment. And again, we've got to respect the views of young people as they come through and build it into the discussions and policy making that we do. The other issue is we can't just let the Tories have such huge domination amongst older people. And I think that's about security as much as anything. Because if it was about policies, we should have not reformed them. Because it was me promising protection of the triple lot, maintenance with the fuel allowance, 
and protection of, um, well, not the dementia tax, that they were being threatened with in terms of care. So on policies, if it was a retail offer, we would have won hands down. But it wasn't about that. It was more about security. And it's interesting, talking about some of the focus groups I've always been for, it isn't necessarily security about themselves. It's about security about their children, their grandchildren for the future. So actually, there's a message of hope that we've got to resonate amongst older people as well. And it's interesting as well. In terms of what happened across the country, um, we didn't pick up the working class vote on the scale we should have done especially in Scotland. In Scotland, the figures demonstrate, actually, we got high percentages of support among supervisors and managers, but much lower among semi-skilled and unskilled workers. And I think that's about the dialogue about quality of life, the real world, what is it like, what are wages like, what's it like at work, the issues around how you're treated by management, what's the quality of life at work as well as the quality of life at home, have you got a roof over your head, what's the rent like, how do you afford a mortgage? All those very practical issues that I think pragmatic bread and butter issues, I think are coming through now. So well, what are, the question is always like, well, what are they going to do about that? So it's about messaging about good things. The other issue as well, I'll just say, it's the point that Rosanna's raised as well, there's a whole group of people out there who we, uh, one of our advisors, a guy called Guy Stanley, it's worth reading his book, Corruption and Capitalism, He's the guy who launched the term precarious. I can't, I don't like it, but it's, a, it's an expression. And it is about those precarious workers, but it's also about precarious people who are not in work as well. And they're the people who don't register, or if they do register, they don't vote. And there's millions of them, absolutely millions of them, so alienated from the whole political system that they're not listening to anyone. So we've got to be the party that listens to them so that they start listening to us. And if we could reap home with just a small percentage of that scale amongst the, the precariat, it would give us almost a permanent majority. And it's interesting, I, you, know, you know better than me in Scotland about this, but in terms of constitutional issues, they weren't the priority this time around, democracy. It was about the pragmatic issues about how people survive. And it's interesting, I, we had this discussion at one of these meetings before, when you're at the depths of a recession, that's not when people usually revolt. That isn't when people get angry and come out and express their anger. They're too busy trying to survive. It's when they're told they're coming out of that recession and they're not sharing it or it's meaningless to their real lives, that's when they start getting angry and start looking for an alternative. And I think that's what we saw in this last election. And that's, I think, where we're at now. But also, in the last election, we were trying to impress upon campaigners and the, elector and the Labour Party in particular, there's groups of people out there that feel completely bloody alienated. You know, carers in our society, the most, I suppose, lacking in acknowledgement of the role that they provide, the least supported, and possibly the ones that are suffering the greatest hardship as well. And actually, we haven't really tackled the issues around what the relationship of politics to a number of ethnic groups within our society as well. And I don't think we have, we think we have, but I don't think we have really addressed the issues around discrimination and abuse that, that goes on with, uh, towards certain sectors of our society itself. And that includes, we think we've come miles in terms of equalities around women and LGBT. And yet, if you go to the workplace, you see women still being paid, what, 14% less of it now than men on average? 
And you go to the workplace and you look at, I think the TUC's figure was 40,000 women who've been laid off over the years as a result of just becoming pregnant. And if you go to the workplace, you still see discrimination against disabled people in particular, particularly those on the spectrum or with mental health problems and also LGBT. So I don't think we've come far enough. That's why the next manifesto needs to be much more radical than that. Just relating to the electoral challenge then, so the issue for us in this coming period is we've always said the narrative is the key thing for us. How we develop the narrative and, and messaging. Now in the last election, we had everything thrown at us. That point that Jeremy made in his conference speech, it was true. You know, the Daily Mail one day had 14 pages attacking us. Uh, me, Jeremy, and Diane Miller. You know, and if I believed any of that, I wouldn't vote for me either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was interesting is that this election proved that they, they don't hold full sway anymore. But they still influence. Let's not underestimate They still influence because that often becomes, that influence in the newspapers often becomes the agenda for the broadcast media as well. So we've got to use every possible means we can to tackle the professional, the, 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 the broadcast media as well as the published media, but also in the last election, of course, we had social media on the scale and with a fluency and a creativity that we've never had before, and that must go on. But one of the areas that we need to develop even further is one of the discussions I think especially in Scotland we've had, because I think you're in advance in many ways in other parts of the country, is how we use culture and how we use the cultural media as much as possible. And that is around music, drama, fiction, etc., art overall. Because it's interesting, when we're talking to people, particularly younger people now, how did you hear about it or how did you get this message? It's often as a result of seeing I, Daniel Blake. Or it's often as a result of listening to a piece of music or whatever. And we've got to be... I think we've got to be aware that cultural messaging is absolutely critical to us. So that's our direction of travel, really. Anti-austerity. Austerity and neoliberal economics is a failed experiment. It's worked for a few, made many the elite extremely rich, but it's failed the many. And what we're doing now, then, is using every mechanism we can to break out of that overall parameters of neoliberal thinking. And the what we've given is the alternative hope, really, um, about how we can, that's the point I was on as well, is how you can harness the fantastic resources that we've got. And we've got to celebrate the resources that we have so that people have the confidence of knowing that applied properly, they can give us a prosperous and sustainable future. And that is, you know, I think we need to drill home to everyone. We're the fifth richest country in the world. The fifth, how can the fifth richest country in the world not feed and house its population? And it's because of the mismanagement of those resources. We've got to go back to the arguments around the natural resources that we've got. The natural resources that we've got in, could ensure that we can have a limited supply of the energy that we need for the future. But also, I think we've got to go back to celebrating the, the, the skills and resources that people and talents that people have in this country. And that history of artistic and scientific and engineering skills that have been neglected under these Tories and put to no good as well. But the argument that we must put is that all those resources then we need to apply to the common good. And that means, basically, that we have to get down to the serious business of how we manage those resources in the interest of the common good when we go into government. And part of that, in terms of the electoral challenge, I just throw this out to you really, 
when we go into government, we've got to go into government on a wave of support that we haven't seen since maybe even before that. And the way we get that now isn't the retail offer, it is about inspiration, but we've got to translate that inspiration into that to a very meaningful level. So that's why we're saying to people, take the Labour Party manifesto now as the basis upon which you engage in community discussions in every community, every town, every city, every village, every local community. Start, we should be convening the meetings now and communicating in different ways we possibly can. So how do we translate this manifesto into implementation in this area? Where's the housing that we need to build or we need to renovate? What sort of level of rents do we need? Where should we actually be now looking for the work that will su sustain us in the long term? Where are the schools going to come from? What education do we need to invest in? What about our health? I think we should be planning that now and engaging with people. So it's no longer when we come to the next election, the traditional get the vote out. What we've got to do now is engage with people in a way that they march out. So, and the concept, this isn't Labour going to government, we're all going into government. We're all going into government at every level so that we can implement the policies that we've discussed in our communities, etc., for implementation. And I think that's the nature of our campaign from here on in, the nature of our, our political engagement. And in that way, I think, not only will it get us into government, but it will sustain us in government when we're in government, and the challenges then come. Okay, and I just want to run through very quickly so you know just how we're preparing for government itself, okay? We've got the manifesto. It was written within the space of, what, three weeks because the election came soon. In fact, in some ways, I'm a bit annoyed at her because she interrupted our work. But, <laughs> um, but we wrote it on the basis of the discussions that we've had in meetings like this, where people had come along and said, this is the issue we face, this is the solution we think there is, and literally it was a writing out of those solutions. You know, so, you know, if there is a housing shortage, bloody obvious, you build the homes, we're going to have half of those council homes, simple as that. If there's a problem on wages, you have £10 a real living wage, you restore trade It was like that. It was just literally almost dictated from those meetings that we had. That's how we wrote it off. What we're now doing is taking that, those manifesto commitments, and at the national level now, we're working out the implementation plans when we go into government. So almost an implementation manual for every policy. And then beside that, the drafting up of the legislation that we may need. So it's all on the shelf. It will be on the shelf when we go to government. Now that will be nourished and ameliorated and mediated by the work that you're doing on the ground that will come through because there'll be other ideas. Roseanne has thrown some in now. Um, other ideas will come forward that we may not have covered in the manifesto if we want to on a different way of doing it than we originally envisaged. So that goes on. And what we want to do is plan a five-year programme of government because we need to use that first five years for laying the foundations of the society that we want to create after that in the second period of office for Labour government and then, and then onwards. It also means what we're doing, so you know, just to give confidence to people, most of us in the Shadow Cabinet have never been in government. You know, we've been on the back benches, etc., and sitting next to Ian Davidson and... <laughs> and he gave me the advice he always used to give me, and I always took. We've gone on too long, be quiet. But what, what we're trying to do now is make sure all of our Shadow Cabinet teams, each one of them is trained up to go into government. So we've brought in Bob Kozak, who used to be head of the civil service in the laws I used to work with years ago, and teams of others, civil servants and others, just to say, look, this is what it's like on the first day. This is what it's like when you walk into government. This is the civil servants that will greet you. These are the people that you should have there 
and these are the methods of decision making that you may want to change, but at least know what is this up and So it's a training exercise for all of us. Before the election, we were meeting with the civil servants in a normal way. The opposition does. When there's an election imminent, we only had a short chance to do that, so I was meeting with the permanent secretary of the, the Treasury and the chair of each, uh, the director of HMRC, and we were saying, because I wanted the first budget by the end of July and the finance bill going through now, and we told them what our priorities were. And we were saying to government, if the election can come at any time, we should have access to our civil service now. We'll see what response there is. Blair was speaking for a year before the last generation in that so we're up to market. But also what we're, going to, what we're doing now is we're looking at the institutions that we will need for the implementation of our manifesto and with scenario planning. So the institutional thing, just to reassure you the work that's gone on, first thing was the Treasury. We've done a review of the Treasury. If you get a chance, have a look at it. Um, again, it's called the Kurzweil Review, Rethinking the Treasury. Because what I was wanted to do is make sure the Treasury starts acting as a finance department again, not interfering into every other <coughs> government ideas. And if we are going to have an economic department, it should be biz. It's a bit like how Wilson tried to do, and they emigrated, but actually it was quite successful. What came out of this was that don't demolish the Treasury, but make sure you've got a strong centre either in number 10 or in the, the cabinet office for coordination, so that's come out of it. What we've also done is we've looked at the implementation of strategy um, right the way through. So in addition to the Treasury, one of the key aspects of our work is about the collection of taxes. So we've done a review of HMRC, about what resources they will need, how it will be properly managed. And surprise, surprise, on most of the working groups of HMRC, advising them on tax reliefs, etc., the accountancy companies that are advising the firms on how to get those tax reliefs and how to avoid their taxes. That will go. We'll bring an element of independent management there and the HMRC will be properly resourced. We've developed on, uh, actually just as Richard Redders has done up here, we've if you, get your ha you can get your hands on documents, do so. We said, right, what strategies do we need as well as the structures? So we've produced our own industrial strategy in detail and it looks at sector by sector is now being worked up about exactly where we go from here, what investment we need, and how that investment will be mobilised. And part of the problem, is the point that Roseanne made, is that short-term rather than long-term investment, here it comes, short-term rather than long-term long investment is the problem. So that's why we put forward the idea of the National Investment Bank. Nothing, particularly original, that came up under Ed Miliband, and actually has now been stolen by the SNP. Um, we'll charge them for it. <laughs> but linked to that is the recognition that in terms of the City of London and the finance sector at the moment, the way you earn the most money is not through productive investment in manufacturing, new tech research, development, whatever, it's in property. And in fact, what's interesting, if you look at the figures, we've got a guy called Graham Turk, CFC Economics, who's in the city, he's one of our advisors, been with me for the last 10 to 12 years. So if you look at his figures, Productive investment is actually subsidising property speculation at the moment. So again, one of the ways of doing that now is, we, is to recognise you need a new structure. So we put forward, I said, I said it in the late um, conference, a strategic investment board which brings together the Treasury, the business department, as well as the Bank of England. Because a lot of this will be around how we shape the financial measures in government that will direct productive investment. So that institutional work is going on apace. But the issue, one of the issues for us is that, okay, we can 
sort out, we can sort out the structures in government, we can harness as best we can the financial sector, and we think we can generate the research, the investment in where this country needs to go in terms of generation of real prosperity. And to be frank, that's going to come from the fourth industrial revolution. It's about new technology, research and development. And we're so far behind. The Japanese are miles ahead of us in terms of robotics. The Germans, Internet 4, have been investing for at least a decade, 15 years and beyond. America has its own artificial intelligence development program that's subsidized by the state itself. It's the same, and China is extraordinary the amount that is going into investment in new tech. And we're lagging behind. Why? Because all of those countries, it's extraordinary. Even America have recognized that this won't come about unless there's a role for the state. So the entrepreneurial state, as very much Patrick calls it, is the one that we want to develop. But our concern is we might go to hard, change institutions, harness the financial sector, get the investment in new tech and etc. in the developments. But that will be nothing unless that prosperity is shared. That's why a lot of our work has been going on is about alternative forms, alternative models of ownership. We produced this report before the general election, uh, and because the general election called, didn't get an awful lot of attention. But it did say, it's almost taken that Piketty argument that it isn't just about income anymore that inequality arises, it's about wealth and ownership. So therefore that's why it is important that there is common ownership of certain sectors like water and energy and, and rail, etc. And, and Those are critical because they're public services and almost natural monopolies. But also what we're saying in this is that people won't genuinely share in the prosperity of our economy unless we extend new models of ownership. And that means, we've said doubling the cooperative sector. If we doubled the cooperative sector in this country, we'd still be behind Germany, and most probably behind many states in America as well. So we want to go further than that. It also does mean, yes, it's worker owners. It does mean worker control companies. It means worker ownership of companies themselves and develop. We're developing the right to buy. So when a company is being sold on, writers have the right to first refusal of that particular company. But it also does mean, and this point was made earlier, it means having strong representation. So it means changing the governance of individual companies. So yes, there are workers sitting on boards. There are workers sitting on remuneration committees that decide the, how the wealth of the, that is created by that company is distributed. And in that way, we can think we can tackle the problems of inequality within our society. That's my progress report for this year, okay? Next year, <laughs> when I come back, and I, I, God, I think Tories will cling on to office for as long as they possibly can. That's my view. But you never know, if, you know, events do avoid events, anything could possibly happen. So we've got to be ready to hit the deck running as soon as we go to government. That's why all this work has been going on and hasn't necessarily got the coverage it deserves. But I wanted to reassure it is happening. But next year when I come back, there could be the potential that not just Labour's in government, but we're all in government. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Think about the transformative role that we could play across society, in every aspect of society. You know, people coming home and having a decent roof over their heads. Children getting an education without being loaded up in debt, particularly in England and elsewhere. People being treated and, and treated by, by professionals who are properly paid. The list is endless, isn't it, about what we can do and how we can transform our society. And the thing is, it's here. The potential is here now. And I think, as I say time and time again, we've 
can't let it slip. We've got to grasp it now with excitement and enthusiasm. Solidarity. And that was the speech by Labour's Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell. Make sure you subscribe to the Labour Talk podcast on iTunes and you can also listen at SoundCloud. We also have a Facebook page, so make sure you go over there and like that. And I look forward to the next episode. Bye.